this conversation about the often unspoken stuff in life and how we find joy and stay present in the midst of it all. This week on the podcast, I'll be sharing an interview I did with Michael Daphne. Michael is a coach, consultant, and founder of the Daphne Group. We spend our time talking about what it looks like to live generative and meaningful life. So first of all, will you just like give me your name, what you do, a little bit about your job, and kind of like how you got to where you're at? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Michael Daphne. I I founded the Daphne Group in 2010, but honestly, it's um, mostly mostly it's myself and three three or four associates. So, um, and I'm basically a coach and consultant um, focused on strengths based leadership and identity. So, um, executives, team leads, pretty much anybody who wants to go. How do I understand who I am and how I lead best, and then how do I create teams? where people are actually in the seats they belong in with and their best fit and then kind of go from there. And so, um, but that's a really weird description, I guess, of it. My father says he's really sick of not being able to tell the neighbors what I do for a living, um, which is pretty true. But um, after, after college, I, um, I spent some work, after doing my undergrad, I spent some work doing, um, basically doing some work uh, with convicted juvenile felons, did a couple of years of that. And then when my student loans came calling, I went to work for Hewlett Packard, and I spent six years with HP, um, starting off in like mainframe server support, literally answering the phone, Hewlett Packard professional column management, this is Mike, how can I help you? About 250 times a day, that was my job. And then sure from there, really good at that. <laughs> I'm like just over and over and over again. <laughs> and then um, after a couple of years, moved into printing and imaging. And so I started working, and I basically became a contract negotiator and writer um, for a division out of Singapore. And so I was living in San Diego, California, kind of working um, Asia Pacific hours and kind of commuting back and forth and doing some work over in Asia. And um, yeah, so I started my travel a little bit. So um, you're going to hear travel is a big part of my story. But I remember I was probably 29 years old and I really never at that point traveled even much outside the United States, which nowadays people are like, oh my gosh, I want to travel everywhere in their 20s. And I, I look at how much I travel now, and I was, I was pretty much 30, I think, before I actually started to really travel. Um, yeah, so I was, uh, I've been HP almost five and a half years, I think, at that point. And um, I had a moment that I tell people a lot about. Uh, it was just weird. I remember I was, uh, I was almost 30, and I think it was in October, actually. I was living in North County, San Diego. I worked at the HP office up in Rancho Bernardo, and uh, one day – Pulling off the exit to go to the office, traffic was backed up, and it took like three turns of the light to to, to make my turn to the office. And honestly, I suddenly, I just had this. I caught my glint my face in the in the mirror, and I was burned out, exhausted, frustrated. Um, I was severely overweight. I was insomniac, and I was like, "Wait a minute! Like, whose face is that?" I didn't recognize myself. Yeah. And I was like, "What?" I'm like, "How did I get here?" Exactly. And what am I doing? And honestly, um, I, you know, in my, we, in my more vulnerable moments, I tell people, I literally bur- burst into tears. I can't imagine what the woman in the car beside me thought. Here's this, here's this 30-year-old, <laughs> here's this 30-year-old 300-pound dude in the car beside him crying. Um, you know, well, but, if that had been New York, you would have been doing that on the subway. So yeah. maybe the car was better. <laughs> you know, there's a benefit to the California story, right? <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, and it was, and so for me, it kind of, it kind of pushed me. It was something about that moment of going, okay, this isn't my life and that's not my face. And then it's like, okay, well, whose life is it then? And then wait a minute, like what does my life look like? And it kind of started this process. Um, I was volunteering for a nonprofit in San Diego 
Um, the Gallup organization, which does polling, but then they also do high performance management tools and assessments, had just released a tool that's more popular now. It's called the Strengths Finder. Mm-hmm. And so the Clifton Strengths Finder, more specifically now, um, had just come out and we were using it with volunteers. And I found I had a knack with that. Well, before I knew it, I had basically within that next six months, I had walked away from HP, gave away everything I owned except what would fit in my two door Toyota and moved from San Diego, California to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and spent a year living on my savings, traveling the country with a small team, helping nonprofits use the Strengths Finder specifically to mobilize volunteers. And it was just kind of fun. And when that was done, I was going to go back to corporate. I was like, okay, here's those student loans again, and my savings is gone. And right before I did, I got a phone call from uh, a nonprofit in Detroit called Eagle Sports, and they revitalized intramural sports fields in the city of Detroit. Because as people fled Detroit, you know, now if Detroit's on the, on the rebound, but yeah. at the time people were fleeing the city, these guys and girls were going in and like they had over 2,000 students in like uniformed intramural leagues, soccer and baseball throughout the city. And they, um, they said, hey, we heard about you. Do you do coaching and consulting? And I'm like, what's a consultant do? I had no <laughs> idea. And that was almost 12 years ago. Wow. This month. Yeah. Wow. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> That's and so, so cool. Were you like um, – I'm all there. Were you like, how did you hear about me? Was that like kind of a shock to be like, somebody heard about me? Like what? Yeah. I, you know, it was – well, I was doing these little gigs. And so people would invite their boards. These nonprofits would invite their boards. And they would say, you know, hey, so who is this guy talking? And I would talk. And so what, you know what's kind of – I found in 12 years. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny. At this point now – I can trace every client in my head back to, I think, three relationships. Wow. And it's, you know, even in this new season, like I think I mentioned when you and I were talking before this call, like right now I'm in a season where I'm taking two years and I'm just kind of trying to live pretty much on the road. I'm home very, very little. Mm-hmm. And there's this one motto that looking back in the 12 years of business for me has really kind of been the anchor of what I do. And it's kind of, and it's the motto, follow the relationship. That has actually kind of been the basis because out of this one relationship with this one person, he's like, yeah, well, my boss heard of you and I don't work there anymore. And he said, you'd be great. And that one client led to that one nonprofit led to United Way, which led me to Chrysler, which then led me to the NFL, which led me to the Detroit you know, Lions, which then led me to Shinola, which then led me to. And so that yeah. was a whole vein of 12 years. But it, honestly, it's really been about the relationships on both the personal and the business side, like just actually people, people and relationships end up being a big deal. I guess maybe this is a weird question, but people who don't follow the relationships but are still still successful, like what are they missing in your opinion? I end up doing consulting at all kinds of different businesses at all kinds of levels, and my clients are kind of all over the all over the all over the spectrum, so to speak. But here's the thing: I think we find that I mean, you'll see people who will achieve. And they may achieve in the short term. And you're like, wow, look at them. They achieved it quick. Typically, it's not sustainable. Or you have those who achieve it, and they, they achieve it so large and so scale. But then over time, it drops out. Um, also, there's those who achieve something, and then they actually implode. They have personal issues. Their personal lives kind of end up falling apart. What can happen is we don't realize is that the anchors that are almost always missing are relationships. Right. How they're, you know, and so... And so we can, we can focus in on, well, are we executing? Are we driving business? Are you achieving? But here's the thing. Clients can tell when you really are in it for you and you're asking for you versus them. Yeah. And, there's, and 
there's one time, there's one thing when you're asking, like there's times when I need help and I will ask something of someone, I'll ask for help. But I, if I've built that relationship, it's there. But then there's times when people go, oh, you don't really have a relationship with me. You just built a connection. Hmm. And those aren't the same things. Okay. So how would you define the difference between the two? You know, I love, I love Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, he talks to Gary V. If, if anybody's trying to build business out there, you know, Gary loves the F-bomb and all that other kind of stuff. He's a good guy. He wants to own the Jets. But, but Gary, what I love about Gary is the authenticity with which he says, you must actually love people. You mm-hmm. can't fake your way into loving people. And, no, and, and honestly, for me, that's what I find is that it's funny. The more stressed I get, if let's say the business is in a down season over the years or something's happened, I will try to go, well, I should send out more emails that look like this and more things that sound like this. And thinking that all that transactional interaction will somehow get me business, yeah. only to discover that that transactional interaction really only serves me when that transaction gives me opportunity to then connect. And that connection makes me feel like, man, I'm going to offer you something and you're going to offer me something. Because why? Because I actually legitimately care. Yeah. You know, and so even with clients that I struggle with sometimes where I'm like, man, this client is a lot of high maintenance. I was telling one of the a, a consultant that I mentor, she owns her own company in Michigan. Um, I, I said, I'm like, she's like, I don't know how to deal with this. I said, you know what? You need to stand outside the office before you walk in and go, my one thing I should do is they should leave feeling more loved after I leave than when I got here mm-hmm. and feel like they got more than they asked for. And you'll feel good about yourself in that way. At the very least, you'll build a relationship. doesn't mean you're a victim. You're not going to let them take advantage of you. But you're going to go in focusing on how do I truly love the client well and make them feel like they matter today. You can give that to them. You can walk out. That's awesome. That's like re- really great advice. Because it's sometimes I find it, especially in New York sometimes, loving and business don't seem to go together. But, but we're human, yeah. so they have to. Um, and I like that connection. Yeah, and I think, I think too, even in this loving the business thing, it ends up – here's the thing. I find that when I worry about my performance – and like, I mean, cause I, it happens to me like everybody else. Every time the bar changes in the level of who I'm speaking to or the bar goes up higher and higher over the years, you're like, man, I'm going to walk into this meeting. Am I enough? Could I possibly give advice? Could I possibly? And some of the people are going in for interviews. They may be listening to your podcast and they're like, man, I'm in this space or I'm going for a new promotion. You can get so focused on you and are you enough that you actually get more anxious and you don't actually get to be yourself. What's funny is the minute you take yourself out of the equation and go, you know what? This moment, the reality is either I'm going to be enough or I'm not. But the answer is, you know what? Can I focus on making these people feel respected, valued, seen, and heard right now? And the more you pivot out, the more you're going to find that actually emotionally you feel way more calm because you're in control of what you give away. You're there. You don't have to perform or tap dance because here's the thing. You don't want a job. If you're not enough, you don't want that job. You don't want it. Yeah. So don't worry about it. If you're if you are great, if you're not tough, someone else will figure it out. You don't want to be anywhere. They don't if they don't see the genius of you in that moment. You don't want to be there. So you have nothing to lose to step in and go. You know what? I'm going to listen. I'm going to be legitimately interested. I'm going to be interested in them and ask them actual questions and see how do I build connections and make them feel. I always, I always say people say what do people? I had a buddy the other day say well what do people really hire you for and I give him. People hire me to understand strengths and then align their team. And he got so annoyed. He's like, no, like that doesn't make, that's just business garbage. And after pushing me for 20 minutes, I said, people pay me to show up at their door and say, I see you, you are not alone and I'm not scared. Mm. Wow. And that, 
And that's what I do for my clients as a coach and as a consultant and a speaker, trying to do that. And that's what people want. They want to know that they're seen. They want to know that they're not alone. And honestly, they want a safe place to be able to admit that, hey, we're all scared. Right. So you take that, take that approach into your meetings, take that approach into what you do. The reality is you suddenly are not the one who's under glass being interviewed, not the one who has to be afraid. Why? Because nobody can control how generous you are. That is full control. You've got that. I and you that. can be in a great place. Yeah, I think that's so interesting of pivoting out. I love that idea because I can relate to people who get nervous and it's all about me. And then it's like, okay, but I can control what I give away. And then you think about that. I love that image. It's really helpful. Well, we've been talking a lot about relationships. I'm curious if there's um, a like specific relationship or person that's especially meaningful to you that's in- influenced you in some way. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple different pieces, you know, as far as there's been a few, um, there's the different seasons, but especially for me in that first, there's always that first window of your life, right? Mm-hmm. When you've got, when you, when I, I, Gallup, we talk, when I talk with, when I talk to Gallup scientists about how our strengths are formed and our talents are formed in our head, they talk about the importance of like the first 10 years and then the first 22 years. Mm-hmm. And for me, like in the first, in the first, those early years of my life, I had, um, had a woman, probably one of my family's closest friends, her name is Lana Jones. And Lana, when I was six years old, started teaching me piano lessons. No one else in my family played piano. None of us really did. And years later, I mean, she just was like, hey, Mike, I'm going to choose a music teacher. I'm going to teach you piano. And we found an old electric piano. And we grew up extremely, probably pretty, quite poor, really poor, actually. Mm-hmm. And we found an old electric piano from somebody. And, and I started taking lessons. And years later, I mean, I realized that she would teach me, she basically taught me music and, but she'd go above and beyond. Like she'd take me places and taught me how to, you know, how to understand musical theory and then just would help tutor me and things like that. She's just a good friend of her family. But I remember being a kid as a kid, she was one of the few adults that I remember being excited to see me. I grew up in a world where little kids should be seen and not heard, Mm. you know, and that's what I was told. And years later, years later, I think I was like 28. I said to her, I was like, why? Why did you do that? And she's like, I, she's like, and she actually kind of said, she's like, well, think of it, Mike. She's like, I don't do this with a whole bunch of other kids. I'm a teacher. But for some reason, she's like, when I saw you, I just, I knew that this was a life that needed some value and it needed something to be proud of. And, it need, and, and you were someone who had some talent, but needed somebody just to shine some, a light on it. Mm, wow. And I was like, Wow. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I cried. Um, I'm not really a crier, but my story's <laughs> awful of tears tonight. Um, but I remember in that space, and it was funny, for years later, I would, I'm, I'm working really hard into my head, almost feel like I wanted to live up to that, kind of going, man, I want to show people that, that what she, I want, I want Lana to know that she saw something before everybody else did. And it was funny. She actually even noticed over the years that I was really driven to go, well, I'm trying to perform for someone else. And she was like, yeah, I need to tell you that, yes, I saw something in you and I invested in that, but I see it. It's not something that it's going to be like proven out in your performance. Like right. you are enough that way. Mm-hmm. And so that message from the beginning for me of, you know what, here's somebody who can speak through, you know, my parents both worked extremely hard and they were gone a lot. And so there's a lot of a noise, a lot of noise. Suddenly you're like, this is a person who says your voice matters from a very young age. And and it got me through that. And then later as an adult, it shaped this concept that I have now of we should live lives of things we get to do, not things we have to do. Mm, 
Yes, that's good. And so most of us get obsessed and overworked and burned out because we don't know who we are if we are not X, Y, and Z. And even in that moment for me, I remember talking to Lana about this and she's like, you act like you're being chased. Like my expectations of you or even me saying positive things or all of the people that spoke in your life, you got to live up to that. Live up to that because you enjoy living up to it, not because you have to live up to it. Right. Yeah, kind of being versus doing. So you're defined by the person that you are and not the things that you're doing. Um, yeah. That's yeah, wow. I think so. And I think Lana started that. Um, there was another, I, again, I, I grew up in a very small town in northern Maine. We were from San Diego. And then when I was a little kid, we moved to this town where my dad grew up. And there's a farmer um, named Robert Guptill, and he had a farm from the time I was 11 years old to the time I was 21. I worked for him. And I just remember he just was like, you can do anything. So if there were things to be fixed, it was just an adult who entrusted this kid and said, if you don't know how to do it, ask me. But I think you can do it, so go do it. And it was just – it never occurred to him that I would be incompetent. It never occurred to him that I wouldn't be enough. And I've never kind of forgotten those pieces. And when I was young, those are two voices that stood out to me, yeah. like really, to get through the noise. Yeah, wow. That's really special to have yeah. that, people um, just breathing like life into that. And also interesting how there was like a second part to that. So you were told these like amazing things and someone yeah. believed in you. But then it took that piece at 28 of being like, oh, it's not... A- I, like, like I don't need to chase after this for somebody. I should do it because I want to. I, I think that's really interesting that, like, it shows how our personal growth and development is such a journey rather than just, like, a thing that happens. And then it's done. It's like a process. Yeah. And because, it, again, it's because I think people get so stuck on, on, oh, I found the key. Well, the key you found that got you through your 20s is not the key that's going to get you through your 40s right. or your 30s. And that was the thing. And I remember telling Lana with great pride. Oh, yeah, I'm working to prove it. And she very sweetly was like, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that doesn't really matter. And I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean? Look at me. I'm so proud. I'm so enlightened at 28. And she's like, yeah, no. Um, and I think that's part of the process is that is that being open, I mean, this not to go into the whole different direction, but there's something about being open to outgrowing where you are. Mm. I, I meet people who struggle with – some people – they hunger for more, be it job, relationship, life, um, whatever it is they're doing, um, their community even. And they, for some reason, it used to satisfy and it's not enough anymore. And so there's a struggle, right, between people who are constantly discontent, who are just never happy, right? And so right. they're seeking and chasing something to make them happy. That's, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you've got to start with understanding your identity, who you are, your talent, your purpose, your passion, your personal values, starting from what I call it an identity-driven life kind of place. But then at the same time, there, for me, I'm like, if you're in a good place, in a healthy place, you should outgrow where you are. Yeah. A job that you're in that you're good at, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So therefore, you should actually be growing. And I always say, think of a child that grows. You would never give a 16-year-old, you know, volleyball soccer player, you know, she's been she's playing soccer at 16 at a competitive level representing her high school, you know, colleges after her. You would never run up to her on the sidelines and hand her a sippy cup of water. Right. And say, "Well, this was what's your problem? This was good enough when you were 5." Yeah. You know, no, she's a, she's a she's an athlete. She's going hard all the time. We would expect that her body has needs 
more had increased because she's grown. But yet we don't have the same expectation that as relationships grow and get healthier, they need more of something else. As we grow professionally and our talents, we should be, our hunger should change over time. Yeah, that's a great way to say it because I think people are afraid of that. Um, I'm sure that shows up for me too, but just like this, well, that constant, like it feels like a struggle to always like get the next thing instead of like a journey towards like, I don't know, finding your best self, which is always happening because you're always changing. I think that right. sippy cup example is really spot on. Um, yeah, because there, there, there's something about that and, and, not, and not being afraid to ask for it because it's the, the, best, the best version of ourselves is not out there. It's right here, right now in the way we can figure out how can I show up and be content with everything I'm not with everything mm. I'm worried about, with everything I'm not, and go, and, and how am I giving this away? Because the exercise of that, like any muscle, the exercise of you being yourself in this moment, you not having to try to put on a show that is someone else, the exercise of you being your best and using your talents, if you use Gallup's word, that then the exercise of your talent becomes your strength. Well, then that strength then will say, wow, there's even more I could do. There's even more influence. But what can happen is we can seek those other jobs, those other places, those other opportunities, not because we actually are ready for them, not because, man, I have so much more to give and where I'm giving it at work and in my life right now can't contain how much I have to give. We don't, instead of that, what we end up doing is going, oh, I need that new thing because then I will have a bigger platform and I'll be more special. Hmm. We almost use the external as a tribute. You know, it's kind of funny. We, I, had, I had somebody a while back tell me, we were actually in this conversation and I was saying to them, the difference between, between understanding our identity and knowing and having a driver's license or an ID card are dramatic. Mm. Like, you know who you are. It's, you know, you're, you're descended from, you have your family and what, whatever your name is and your ethnicity and all the elements that make up you and who you are and your age and your nationality and all these different pieces. There's a, there's a whole that is you. It's your identity. And what's happened is, though, especially, you know, post 9-11 and things, we have become obsessed with ID. In fact, I could say all day long to the TSA agent today at the airport, well, I'm Michael Dauphiny. And they're like, tough. Mm. I don't believe you. Why? Because we have begun putting more focus as a culture on the thing that is, oh, well, this has been vetted. And authority says Michael Dauphiny is 42 years old. He's this, this, and this with blue eyes and brown hair and blah, blah, blah. And so we've stopped trying to be ourselves and be who we are. And basically turned our lives into this mad obsession for credentials and identity cards. Yeah. Wow. That's so true and crazy to think about. Uh, and how, like, we all just buy into that until we question it. And we're like, oh, wait. Wait, we're doing that. Wait, um, well, yeah, we're in the middle of that. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to give people back that, that sense of going, you know what, hey. Because... You need room to, like, and I always say it this way, when the place, you know it's time to move on, when the talent and gifts you feel like you have to give can no longer be contained in the seat you're sitting in. Mm. The, spot that's, the spot that your boss, that your team, or your life is asking you to pour yourself into, and you're like, man, I'm giving it out there, but man, I just, I've got more that I want to offer, and they don't seem to, and there's just no space for that. Yeah. That's when you start to ask those questions. Right. But if you're, if you're being stingy and not being your generous and not giving all your all right now, and you're just like... I just don't want to be here because they don't think I'm a brilliant genius enough. I should go somewhere else. Yeah, good luck with that. Mm. Because if you think you feel 
Because what happens is the insignificance in that moment, you feel like you're insignificant. You're going to feel even more insignificant when you go to the next spot and it's even bigger. Right. That's really interesting. Wow. Okay. It's like food for thought as we're going along. Um, so Sorry. no, it's so good. This is, this is the kind of stuff we talk about all the time. Like, so about strengths, but, but these are the conversations that honestly I am having with CEOs of fortune 500 companies that are 55, 60 years old and 26 year old entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right. And this is what people don't seem to realize. I mean, is this question of at what point do I really understand myself and my identity and who I am and how do I live moving in the direction of me is something that I say a lot mm-hmm. and may and dr- have my life being kind of directed by my identity at the same time versus going, but I also need to know, am I in the right seats? Am I making wise choices? Am I pushing and who am I? And how do I, how do I, you know, deal with myself with the rigorous honesty, so to speak? Yeah. Like, am I in the right seat or am I just not giving my all? Like, just like where, what's the truth? Like, do I really yeah. need to be in a different seat or do I need to be giving more of myself? Um, and whatever that is. And in whatever that is. But, you know, it's, you know, Gallup just did a study that just came out and it, analyzing, you know, the millennial word. I hate that word, by the way, which yeah. drives me crazy. I just basically say the majority of the current workforce because that's what that's yeah. what that's what people are. So people under thirty five, but they did a study actually comparing not just people under thirty five, but going back to traditionalists. So people seventy who are like in the retirement space, um, baby boomers, Gen Xers, um, you know, millennial space, and then now what is the twenty two year olds just graduated college? What's interesting is though people under thirty five, I think that's somewhere around sixty seven percent said. If they had quit their job in the last 12 months, it was almost always because there was no room to grow. Mm. That's been, so what's interesting is there's a mass hunger in the world right now for people going, this is no longer just about my paycheck. It is actually the calling of my life is about being in a seat where I get to give myself away, but then there's also other areas that I know that one, you care about my growth, but then even if I did grow, you actually have space for me. This conversation got me thinking a lot about what it means to pivot out with our lives. I definitely get caught up in how I appear to others. Will they like me? Will they think I'm enough? But I really can't control any of that, nor should it define me in any way. But what I can control is what I give away to other people and how generous I choose to be. Join us next time for part two as we dive into Michael's travels and how that has unfolded in his life.